Hi, folks, and thank you for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. You know what I'm going to say, but I have to say it anyway. Please go to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's the only way we keep these mics on and the conversations happening. We know people are feeling the pinch, but we do like to think that what we do explains where those pinch points are and the alternatives to it. And we think there's a value in that. We know there's thousands of people listening. So to keep those conversations going and keep informing people, we need you to pay it forward. We need you to make the effort and go to that Patreon link right there on your phone and give us the price of a pint once a month. You know what? Try it out even for a month. See if you like it. See if you don't. And we're very grateful for every cent we receive. You get a ton of extra content, exclusive content that stays behind the paywall forever and a day and access to the podcast as quickly as we can turn them around, including this week we're going back to Brazil to talk about what has happened in the presidential uh, election and, and there's some very interesting developments there. We also have Claire McGettrick from Adoptions.ie to talk through the new tracing system and how that is or is not working for survivors of mother and baby homes and a lot, lot, lot more. Please, 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 one last time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise Oh, and lastly, congratulations to Rory on the publication of his new book, Gaffs. Do check it out in all good independent bookshops now. Uh, congratulations, pal. It is a great read. And now I'll finally let you listen to this brilliant conversation we had with Professor Richard Murphy. Hello and welcome to Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves. And Martin, if fraud was something you could drink, we'd probably be overindulging at the moment. And I'm not saying that to, to, to make light of it, but there is an element of we do kind of need to rein ourselves in almost watching what's happening across the water, no? Uh, I kind of think so. But then again, like we were all saying last week, they can't they can't hold out forever. They can't hold out in the face of the markets, absolutely destroying the pound. And it has come to pass. They can't hold out. Yeah. Um, look, we, we are delighted. And I mean this genuine delight to be rejoined by Professor Richard Murphy uh, again, who is going to talk to us about a U-turn. Uh, that 24 hours ago was adamant wouldn't happen and uh, maybe what comes next Richard first of all thanks again for joining us it's great to see you and you thanks for asking me on again not at all listen um, Quasi Quartang came out this morning and he said we get it and we have listened Uh, you know what what's and again I get in trouble now I believe it was uh, Lenin who said there are there are Decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. Uh, we have gone through a week where a decade has happened, Richard. So if you want to just maybe outline where you think that, how that all has gone on, and then we'll get into what comes next. Look, I mean, it's been an amazing week. Um, the pound crashed. Interest rates have risen phenomenally. Record amounts on government um, debt in the last week. Mortgage rates are rising to the point where I reckon at least half households in the UK with a mortgage within a year or so will have a debt that they can't pay. Simple, straightforward statement of fact. No subjectivity required here. Um, There are... Markets in turmoil, pension funds collapsing, 65 billion of government funding required just to provide some stability in that sector, exposing risks that none of us really knew existed. Well, actually, I did because it's derivatives and it's asset swaps and things that I've hated forever, um, but which most people really can't get their heads around. Um, and you know, this is chaos. And then we get out of this. <laughs> Trust doing her first major interview yesterday since 
uh, really since the um, the budget. She's interviewed by Laura Koonsberg, traditionally a pretty soft touch interviewer with the Tories. Certainly, certainly Tory friendly. Yeah, that's the impression one gets from Laura is that she's Tory friendly. Um, I certainly didn't get the impression from her that she was um, Labour friendly when she was interviewing me when I was working with Jeremy Corbyn. Now, um, she actually does put in some really tough questions, surprisingly, to Liz Truss, like who voted for this? And I think that Truss realised that she was really up against the wall. The other thing that happened in the course of that same programme was Michael Gove was there, you know, former um, cabinet minister, been around longer than most Tories now, um, generally reckoned to have a brain, um, pointing in the wrong direction most of the time, but actually probably has got a brain. Um, And he was just spitting fire. Um, It was clear that he was not going to support things like the 45p tax rate. He was angry about the fact that there were unfunded tax cuts and wanted to know more. He felt that this was incompetent. And it's clear that Grant Shapps, who, again, a minister for whom I've had remarkably little time, but who is notoriously good at organising Tories, um, is also firing against Liz Truss. And it's apparent that they have lined up and they've got the Tory MPs to say to the whips, look, you either back down on something or we're just going to rebel already. Um, And this is a government that, remember, is not a month old yet. It came into office on the 5th of September and we're recording this on the 3rd of October. It's four weeks old. Two weeks of those, it wasn't in operation because the Queen died. And staggeringly, it's trashed the entire UK economy, it seems, in that time. Unbelievable when you put it in the context of when we see it back and we watch it. Now, I was Martin asked me earlier when we were talking about the uh, what will the markets bear this? Will the markets put up with this? I think the markets obviously one thing that drives them is um, you know that they they can forget very quickly if the U turn is successful. They can actually you know they can say well this has happened because they they've had a, a lot of success. I'm going to say in shorting their the pound. A lot of people have have benefited from actually doing some of the ugly stuff of going to get betting against the UK economy. But also on the, on the flip side of this, we've seen the, well, I mean, from an Irish perspective, an apology almost given to Ireland. And we've, we weren't, we haven't been great negotiators in, in terms of Brexit and, and the Northern Ireland protocol. We shouldn't have done this. Do you think when we ask what comes next, the central bank of England doesn't seem to be averting the, the the route they're taking, and Liz trusts herself. Even though this is a U-turn, I, you put it yourself. You think she's a true believer in in this in this way of actually trying to stimulate the growth in the economy. Look, there's a political U-turn here in economic terms. Um, anybody who looks at this will say this is really of no consequence. The cutting out the 45% um, tax rate was only £2 billion of tax giveaway. Now, that's a lot of money for each person who got it, of course, because there were relatively few of them who were going to get the benefit. But the consequence in overall economics is tiny. Uh, £2 billion is one four hundredth of total government income in the UK. So it's neither here nor there. In terms of economics, it doesn't make a difference to the city. And in fact, the city's reaction this morning, I'm a sad git, so I'm sitting here looking at a chart of the value of the pound. Meet your brother. (laughs) And the chart has shown that the pound has risen this morning, but to nothing like what it was a month ago, let alone what it was six months ago. So there's no sort of great um, 
welcome for this move. There's just some general increased sentiment. You know, she's making some moves towards public opinion. But the package of unfunded cuts is still there. There is still no wealth tax. Oh, there's sorry, there's still no windfall tax. There's still no statement on how she's going to fund the rest. There's still no indication as to whether she's going to use quantitative easing more generally rather than this specific report for pensions that she's done. There's no indication that there's going to be a package of government investment. Very clearly what I'm hearing from people time and again is that there's talk about the fact that, well, there's going to be a fiscal consolidation. And what does that mean? It means austerity. There's going to be a cut in spending uh, in the NHS, in education and elsewhere. And these are already cut to the bone. I mean, there are kids who've been told you'll have to bring your own blankets into school this winter because we won't be able to uh, turn the heating on in the UK. Um, There are six million people waiting for appointments in the NHS, not treatments, appointments in the NHS. And and this is one of the best explanations as to why we have appalling productivity, but it's also crushing morale. Nothing she has done here changes morale. In fact, it actually almost highlights that she was so stupid to have tried to do two things simultaneously. One, cut tax rates. Two, cut government spending. Now, cutting tax rates for the wealthy is never particularly popular with the rest of the population if they don't get very much in exchange. And cutting it at the same time as cutting government spending, and it's clear the signals are there that that's going to happen, is disastrous. So we've seen the opinion polls. The opinion polls are suggesting, and they vary a bit, but let's call it on average 25% Labour Party lead. Now, there's nothing on its own programme that justifies Labour having a 25% party lead at the moment. Um, This is not because Keir Starmer had such a stunningly successful party conference, uh, which, of course, did also happen in this period, uh, in the last week. Nope, it's because Truss has literally trashed the um, electability of the Tories by doing things that are so stupid, so bizarre, that she has gifted the next election to oh, Labour. Oh, I don't know, Richard. She was brilliant on the local radio when she did all those interviews. Some, <laughs> I mean, everybody says it unanimously that she she gave every. The markets all were totally convinced. And oh my god, <laughs> can I ask about can I ask about austerity, Richard? In that we went through that here in our yeah. we, and and it made everything worse, and it was a big bloody mistake. And even the IMF came out and said. You know, we shouldn't really have done this. We shouldn't have really done this, but they did. But recently we had uh, an economist in Ireland say that the Irish poor aren't so badly off because the British poor are way worse off. Now, how can you how can you put austerity on people who are probably the worst off in Europe? The poorest in the UK are probably well, the, the worst. The, off the, the poorest in the UK are, are the poorest high income country. In, yeah. in in that and and like you know so we're that's terrible to even put people in those categories but that but those are the statistics Richard and it bears out that and again no fan of him no fan of him at all but David McWilliams was the person who made that awful comment of saying you know our poor are less poor than your poor but but it but it was it was a when you look at the statistics and then you see 18 billion of cuts which was the real news today that's yeah. the real news. Yeah. It's 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 the it's the it's the the cuts are still going to go ahead as opposed to this tax this tax break. So where do we, where does it go next? And how like because we believe on this podcast and Martin backing up on this austerity won't work. Look, austerity can't work. Um, first of all, I mean, let's just do some basic economics here. 
there's a formula which explains the income of a country. It's C plus G plus I plus X minus M. Now, I hate to do some maths loud on air, but actually this is worthwhile. C is consumption, G is government spending, I is investment, and X minus M is net imports and exports. X is exports, M is imports. So if X exports are bigger than imports, then it's a positive. It contributes to growth and vice versa. The government says it's going to cut its spending. Therefore, G is going to go down. Consumer confidence is at its lowest level since records began in 1974. It's the surest indicator there is that people will not spend more than they have to. They will save because they know there's a crisis coming and that they have to keep all their money back to pay basic bills. So therefore, they're not going to be spending. Business does not invest when it knows there's nothing to actually persuade people to buy. So why would you invest if you're going to create a product that people can't afford to buy? You won't. So I is going to go down. And Brexit completely destroyed any prospect we ever have of exporting anything ever again from the UK. So X minus M is going to be a negative. We are going to see more imports than exports. So every single one of those variables is going to go down as a result of what trust is doing. So the consequence is that she's just making it worse with her announcements. If you are actually going to change things around now, and Danny Blanchlauer, who used to be on the Monetary Policy Committee and I, put out a statement last Thursday, I think it was Thursday or Friday, saying, what would we do? We had an evening brainstorming on this. Um, A slightly different perspective, economists looking at the issue and came up with a program where we said, look, first of all, we'll take the entire pressure off interest rates because we'll just do $100 of QE to fund the energy support program for people in the UK. Call it an emergency, like 2008, like COVID. Chuck the money in from government-created funds. Deal with that that way. It will take all the pressure off interest rates, which is fundamental to actually make sure people can stay in their homes. I think we can cut interest rates down to a couple of percent again, then leave them there at best, even in the longer term, see them falling. But what we'd also do is look at, could we raise another package of funds by changing the tax rules on saving in the UK and actually encouraging people to put their money into a green investment bond? Actually positively saying to people, rather like a war bond, you know, it's crazy, but actually we might need to think about this. Get people to save for the future prosperity of the UK. So we actually invest in green energy, energy saving, insulation, new methods of um, generation, whether that be onshore, offshore tidal, um, et cetera, um, and uh, just roof um, solar panels, all of those things massively supporting the economy because they're import substitution. In other words, we're not having to buy energy from outside the UK, which pushes up the value of the pound. Plus a programme to actually, of course, support UK food production, which is something we've kind of forgotten about um, because that's just so untrendy to think about basic things like food. Now, if we did some very basic things and change the whole direction of government policy, we could do that. But it requires a brave government to say, first of all, we're going to use quantitative easing when nobody else is. And secondly, we're going to interfere with people's savings patterns. You're not going to be able to put your money in your pension and let it be speculated on the city in its entirety anymore. Someone's got to go for social purpose. If you want to invest in something we have called an individual savings account, which is a tax-free savings account, you can put in up to 20,000 quid a year. If you happen to have a spare 20,000 quid a year, which of course every Everybody has, uh, maybe not, but amazingly, seventy billion pounds a year goes into those accounts. Mm-hmm. If 
you actually rearrange that. I could find a hundred billion a year for investment in the UK. Easy that, and into and, and, to, and that into, will transform the UK economy I, over uh, the next few years. I, I put that, Martin. You recall I put that to Richard Boyd Barrett of PVP the other day, and he nearly he he was all, hadn't thought about that because there's 140 billion in 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 deposit accounts in Ireland. You're, and I, you're basically talking a kind of sovereignty fund, really. Is what you're I'm basically asking people to change their savings patterns, and I've done the background research because, yeah, again, sorry, this is the bit of the ga- geeky academic style stuff. I go off and look at why do people and how do people save, and actually, 81 percent of savings in the UK are in tax incentivized assets of some sort. So whether it's in pension funds or these ISA accounts or in their homes, which are, of course, tax incentivized because you don't pay capital gains tax on them. And some of us even once upon a time got incentives for our mortgages and so on. Now, that's different from Ireland slightly, but not that far out. So all of these things are the sort of standard things that government subsidize for saving, where most of the benefit goes to the rich, bluntly, because the rich are the people who save. Now, And it costs about 60 plus billion a year to provide those subsidies at present. Use those subsidies for social gain is my argument. The money is there in terms of subsidies. Redirect the money, get it into a wealth fund, spend that money to actually create the positive growth, employment, long-term apprenticeships in trade union represented roles where people have got a long-term chance of getting a skill that they can use the next 20, 25 years at least, because we're going to need it for that long. Then we can talk about building a prosperity. Yeah, it sounds very much like you're saying, let's just get rid of Tory politics and Tory economics. That sounds very much what you're saying. Well, I was just listening, actually, to a chap called Matthew Goodwin. Um, Now, I don't ever agree with him normally. Um, He's a lecturer in politics at University of Kent. And his politics and mine, you know, draw a Venn diagram and there's no overlap, nearest damn it. But he was talking about the fact that actually his research shows that only 6% of people in the UK believe in this hard right agenda that is being put forward by the government now of tax cuts for the rich. That's interesting. That's interesting. And there's no fundamental bedrock of support for this. It's a tiny little group who think like this. And his argument was that unless trust backs off, and remember, this is a right winger arguing this, unless trust backs off, she is going to put the Conservative Party into political history. Now, nothing could please me more, bluntly. In some ways, let's read on, <laughs> except for the pain, the hurt. There you go. With the, all, all the damage that's going to do, this creative destruction is yeah. going to, as you beautifully put it the first time we discussed, that behind those macro numbers, there are families and businesses and people yes. whose lives are, are, are destroyed. And that is what this means. And, you know, it's all well and good to talk about this creative destruction and say that, you know, new things will rise. It's absolutely going to leave people in penury. So it's a political issue as well. We've seen the opinion polls. If, um, now, again, I know he killed a llama. I think it's he shouldn't have killed a llama, but 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 Sir Keir Starmer is there now, and you know whether you want to um, applaud him or not. But nonetheless, he has this monumental lead. So the last thing the Tory Party actually want is to go to the public. They do not want an elect- election right now because those polls scream wipeout. How does how do they politically get something that actually 
either either how does Keir Starmer first of all go and do something that maybe forces this election because we can't go from Cameron to May to Johnson to Truss and now Johnson hovering around again hoping he gets another go just can't like I I think I made a comment earlier and it was wrong and mean of me but I did say that this U-turn was very good for the laughing stock markets <laughs> How can we get a change? Look, the answer is I don't think that the Tories can sustainably choose another leader anymore. I think that the world just won't accept it. I mean, I'm not a fan of people out on the streets rioting i have absolutely no problem being out people being out on the streets because that's how we you know in desperation have to express our democratic choice to protest and we should be able to do that but i don't think people will tolerate another tory being imposed on them actually what i think is going to happen is this hi i'm going to interrupt your podcast right there and the reason i'm going to interrupt it is to tell you a bit about the tortoise shack The Tortoise Shack was set up five years ago and we've done over 900 podcasts on the Echo Chamber podcast alone and there are other podcasts on our platform and you're probably listening to one of those podcasts now either Reboot or one of the other great podcasts on our platform. We only survive by having patrons and I understand it's difficult for everybody at the moment, everybody's feeling the pinch. But if you want to know why you're feeling the pinch and understand the reasons behind why you're feeling the pinch, well then the tortoise shack is the source for you. Now there are people listening to this who can afford to be patrons, so please sign up and become a patron. Remember, the tortoise shack survives on patrons alone. Pay it forward. Let those who can't afford to listen to it, listen to it on your dime. That's what this is all about. Informing people, making sure they know why they are where they are and how to to solve these situations and make things better for everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm going to let you go back to your podcast now. The Labour Party isn't going to put down a motion of no confidence in the government as yet, in all probability, because it can't be sure it's got 40 plus Tories who'll vote with them or 80 plus Tories who'll abstain. So at the moment, there's just going to be a fight going on, a war of attrition. The Tories are hating what Truss is doing. They will cooperate with Labour to beat individual measures. What they won't do as yet is try and bring Truss down. And only a vote of no confidence can bring a prime minister down and demand a general election. But then there are what supposedly Harold Macmillan, who was the UK prime minister in around 1960, called events, dear boy, events. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no evidence he actually said it, but it's always thought to be him. And let's assume that that's the case. And let's assume they're going to be events. What are those events going to be? Is it a strike? Is it a strike by hospital doctors, which is for the first time ever on the cards? Is it literally people not being able to pay? We just don't know. But something will happen that is going to trigger the most extraordinary alarm in the population about what she's doing. And it will be quick. And the fever will rise and it won't be the markets that will rise this time. It will actually spill over into the reality of people's pockets and their anger will just demand a change. At that point, I think 
mercenary Tories, because all Tories are mercenary. And lots of these Tories are going to be looking at what are we going to be doing next after we lose our seats, whether we decide to quit Parliament voluntarily or whether we stand for election again. What is going to maximise our chance of actually getting a job after this shit show is all over, if I'm allowed to say shit show, because it seems right description in this case. And so they're going to suddenly say, hang on a minute, I've got to look as though I have at least some level of decency left. And just as 50 ministers quit Boris Johnson's government because they thought, you know, the stain is too great of staying, I think we're going to find up to 100 Tory MPs are going to say, I need a job after this. They're not going to be like Michael Gove, who can retire because he's of an old enough age. You know, he's done a previous career in journalism, had 20 plus years as an MP. He's got a sufficient pension. No, they're going to be needing a job. And they're going to want to actually say, I didn't support this government. I, and I, the indication is they will actually vote against it. So I think we will get a vote to bring down this government. We, I just don't know when. But we, think- we saw that um, in the 2011 election in Ireland, where the, the government of the day, they pretty much bailed out. Every one of them retired, went off to do, because they knew they'd screwed the pooch. They, they had yeah. absolutely fecked everything up. Quantitative easing, just want to bring you back to that for a second. You're saying that you would be the first to introduce quantitative easing in the UK, but that looks on the cards globally now. You have banks teetering on the edge. You have, uh, ever since they withdrew quantitative easing at the beginning of COVID, they've wanted it back and they've done everything they can to get it back. Well, there's a very good reason why we need quantitative easing back. I mean, quantitative easing is a deeply technical subject, which a lot of people get have difficulty getting their heads around, as I know, because I've tried time and time again to explain it on my blog. And there are deeper aspects of it, which are even more complex, which I've, again, delved into in a lot of depth on occasions, like the double entry accounting, what are called central bank reserve accounts and how they went, which is the real geek stuff. I promise you, you can really go and look it up and read it. And I've written it all out just to explain how this stuff really functions because it's pernicious in some ways and yet liberating if we actually get our heads around it and change it for the common good, which we could do. The reason for doing this geekery is to actually work out how to get it to be done properly. Well, hang on, Richard. I want to come in on that and then I'll let you finish. But Quantitative easing, similar. I'm gonna. I want to simplify it just for listeners' benefit. That there was an there's an issue where whereby, when it was done, banks' balance sheets were 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 rescued. But there was an, as you put it, there was a, there was an alt, there was an opportunity for there to be a better thing done with the social good with it as well, and it's getting that striking that balance. Yes, look, QE can either be done by just injecting new money into the economy, without really dictating where that money will end up. And that is what was done in particular from 2010 to 2009 to 2013, very strongly around the world. And then it was done very heavily again around COVID. And the purpose was clearly to fund governments and their deficits to make sure that people were protected. So you could say that was good news, but it still increased the value of bank balance sheets. Now, what we have to do, therefore, is say, well, your balance sheets have now got hundreds of billions, if not trillions of pounds or euros or dollars or yen on them. And what are you going to do with those for the social benefit? So the banks are paid money on those balances. Extraordinarily, they earn interest on the money they were gifted by governments as a result of quantitative easing. And my answer is take away the interest on it. 
just literally declare that there's zero interest, unless you're now willing to reinvest that money in something for social purpose. It's the same thing as I've just said with pensions and ISIS. This money is currently being used to enrich bankers. And of all the people on earth who don't need further enrichment right now, bankers are top of the list. So we need to change the rules around this. QE can be used to direct funds towards social investment for long-term prosperity, sustainability, and the creation of full employment, but not if we use it as it has been used to date. So we have to rethink how it is done. And the program has to therefore be about a specific issue. So create a sustainability bank, whatever you wish to call it, or a sustainability fund, or a wealth fund, issue a bond, have the government buy it, but use that money to this time create prosperity long-term by investing in the things that we as a society need, not just for the short term, that's covered by government spending, but QE covers the investment angle, which actually moves us as a society forward because we've been stagnating now for too long because of neoliberalism, because of its failure in 2008. Damn it, it's 14 years, 15 years since Northern Rock fell over. And you know, here we still are stuck with the residue of this failed ideology, and it's time we move forward. What practically do you think? I mean, is that practical in the UK with the political situation the way it is? I mean, Starmer's not going to look too beyond the fiscal box. Oh, I don't know. He say. looks, he seems very radical to me. Uh, he definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I mean, he's he's kind Tony, of. Should I be calling an ambulance for you? Yes, yes. I, I, I'm only. See, I'm probably the only person here who sat through the the labor files on Al Jazeera. I that party, what they did, like whether you're a big believer in what Jeremy Corbyn was about or not, and you know, I tend to lean into much of what Corbyn preached myself. But that that aside, there, there's a, there's an. A Tony Blair wet blanket effect of Keir Starmer, and um, maybe that maybe that's going to give people comfort. Maybe, maybe people want a wet blanket right now, Mark. I don't it's, know. It, it's uh, like I do sim- see similarities between the UK and the US and the politics in that both don't have a, a credible opposition. They're both so very much in the same box, both the opposition and government, that it's very difficult to see a clean break from from as we'll say. Uh, QE for the rich. It's very hard to see anybody doing a clean break to QE for the social good. Well, I'm afraid to say I agree with you there. Martin, you're spot on. Because what we have is the Labour Party, basically the economic policy being run by Rachel Reeves. And yet she left university and she went to the Bank of England. And that's everything you need to know. Um, Because she's basically a mainstream thinker. And she believes that it's the Bank of England's job to be independent of central government, which therefore means that nobody has overall control of the economy. And she believes that it's the Bank of England's job to support the banking sector and not the rest of the country. And they believe in balanced budgets, which is absolutely stark raving crazy when the rest of the economy is not creating the wealth that is needed to generate the future prospects for us. And I mean wealth in a sustainable fashion here rather than wealth in just consuming more carbon. And there's nothing. Nothing in Labour, which at the moment is telling me there's any chance of there being a breaking of the mould. And I talk to backbenchers, um, some of whom are deeply pessimistic. Um, One of them said to me recently, imagine this. Ed Miliband is the most left wing member of the shadow cabinet. Um, That is not 
a clear indication of a government or a a party heading for government that is going to take risk. So is it possible that they too will deliver austerity and and a failing economy? Yes, very likely. And what that leaves is a void in British politics for something more radical. And that's because no one's got a better song to sing. I mean, really, um, I keep on having publishers approach me at the moment saying, for Christ's sake, Richard, sit down and write that song. Um, now, I know um, I'm, I'm not going to be literally picking up my guitar because you really wouldn't want to hear that. But talking about what is the new economic story, how do we move from the isolation of neoliberalism, which is all about the focus upon the individual, to the participation that a new economy requires, where we work together in community to build our collective prosperity. To me, that's the story, by the way. That's it, in a nutshell. We've got to move from isolation to participation. Um, I choose the word participation deliberately because it's not about the ownership of the means of production. It's about what we do for each other this time. I think it moves on beyond the Marxist logic about the ownership of the means of production to something which is broader in that sense, um, embraces the idea that there will be communal ownership of a great deal of resources for the benefit of all, but goes beyond that. And I think that that, to me, is where we need to be thinking. But is that going to come from the Labour Party? Sure as heck not at present. No, and I think that's a very good point to wrap this up on. I think that is where the future is. Um, it, it just politics isn't able to meet that. Uh, it really just goes to show politics isn't hasn't kept up to date with the needs of the people, and it just hasn't. Richard, thanks very much for coming on and have this conversation with you, uh, with us. I do think that you're right. It's the little things. And I do think the little things will be big bills. And I think they are the little things. Um, Thanks again for for having this conversation with us, Richard. I just want to say one thing before we finish, because uh, listeners may think that, again, I opened this by saying a bit of schadenfreude, but I saw today that um, the Home home Buying Finance Ireland, which is the government set up this quango to help small developers and builders develop properties because we're you know we have a housing crisis so we'll give a few quid this will lend if they can't get they can't get money from the banks who are hoarding the money on their balance sheets as richard outlined and uh, 211 apartments out in Clonsilla and dublin 15 and blanchardstown all use the finance through the hbfi all by all to a cuckoo fund folks <laughs> so the cuckoo funds opting in and taking that money and now they're going to lease it back to the state for 25 years, pay no tax, and, and we'll never own the assets. Don't think we're immune from it here. We just yep. happen to have uh, much, we have happen to have this kind of, I, w- I won't say more sophisticated, maybe more Gombean, uh, professionalized way of doing it. Richard, I really appreciate it. it. It's great to get your input. Our listeners love hearing you. So absolutely, they, they love hearing you. We always get great feedback. So thank you again for joining us. And uh, we will talk to you very, very soon. Take care. Thanks, guys. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.